Hey everybody, it's Andy. Just a trigger warning, because this episode deals with uh, grooming and sexual molestation of minors within the framework of Greek culture. So if that's something that you feel like might be triggering or problematic for you, and it is a tough subject, uh, maybe this one is not for you or uh, the wee ones. Thank you so much. The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Oops, oops, oops. <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to the Burrows of Berea. Folks, welcome back to Notes from the Underground, where we are going to take a microscope to some of Christianity's thornier topics and people. I am your host, Tiziana Mom So Hard Savars. How are you, Mom? so hard right now. I made you cookies, y'all. <laughs> I made you I some cookies, kiddos. Yeah. <laughs> I actually felt really bad that Sarita wasn't going to make it because I had planned to make chocolate chip cookies because she made the comment last time. Yeah. Made, but she's not here, so I'm actually going to save that for the next time. Oh, she very good. Because uh, I want to talk to her. I have a whole thing I want to do with her next um, for the next notes from the underground. Yeah, uh, cool. To the right, we've got Rick the Podfather. <laughs> hey, can I borrow Greg so that I can pet him funnily? Ooh, like the Podfather, yeah. be like, I make a podcast. You can't refuse. You didn't even buy me a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and behind the glass, as always, Rocketman Andy Bishop. Yeah. It is just the three of us today, and we are going to be tackling the next opportunity to discuss same-sex relations in the Bible. We have already covered Genesis. We've covered Leviticus in the last episode. And then this episode, we're going to set up and knock down uh, the pins for Romans chapter one. So, and actually, we're going to be doing a lot of cultural setup for the entirety of the New Testament today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, this, this particular topic, I could go on and on about, mm -hmm. um, because the setup for this particular uh, this particular conversation is is a lot. Uh, so that's what we're going to be jumping into today. Uh, starting with, I want I want to start today's podcast by reading a poem. <laughs> we're going to read a poem by an ancient Greek named uh, Simonides of uh, here we go, like Argamathea. He, oh, oh, Amargos, Seminides of Amargos. All right. Women by Seminides. <laughs> Great start. From the start, the gods made women different. One type is from a pig, a hairy sow <laughs> whose house is You're like right. a rolling heap of filth. And she herself, unbathed in unwashed clothes, reposes on the shit pile growing fat. Another type the gods made from a fox, pure evil and aware of everything. This woman misses nothing, good or bad. She notices, considers, and declares that good is bad and bad is good. Her mood changes from one moment to the next. One type is from a dog, a no-good bitch, 
a mother through and through. She wants to hear everything, know everything, go everywhere, and stick her nose in everything and bark, whether she sees anyone or not. (sighs) A man can't stop her barking. Not with threats, not when he's had enough by knocking out her teeth with a stone, and not with sweet talk either. Even among guests, she'll sit and yap. The onslaught of her voice cannot be stopped. One type the gods of Mount Olympus crafted out of earth, their gift to man. She's lame and has no sense of either good or bad. She knows no useful skill except to eat and, when the gods make winter cold and hard, to drag her chair up closer to the fire. Another type is from the sea. She's two-faced. One day she's calm and smiling. Any guest who sees her in your home will praise her then. This woman is the best in all the world and also the most beautiful. The next day she's wild and unapproachable, unbearable even to look at, filled with snapping hate, ferocious, like a bitch with pups, enraged at loved ones and at enemies alike. I've been that one before. <laughs> <laughs> That's, they just, that, that, Seminides came to my house when I was like three weeks postpartum and wrote that shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Just as the smooth, unrippled sea at times stands still, a joy to mariners in summer, and then at times is wild with pounding waves. Because remember, she's, she's writing, this one's like the sea, right? Yeah. This woman's temperament is just like that. The ocean has its own perplexing ways. Another type is from a drab gray ass. She's used to getting smacked and won't give in unless you threaten her and really force her. Did you just say smack what? that ass? Smack, smack that ass. <laughs> yeah. This is a poem. A- this is a this is a Greek poem, right? Wow. wow. Yeah, this such, is art. Such art. Yeah, wait, wait. Listen, there we discussed in the previous episode like the good argument, bad argument in clouds. Yeah. These guys are so gross. Wow. All right. So She's used ass. to getting smacked and won't give in unless you threaten her and really force her. Wah. She'll do her work all right and won't complain. But then she eats all day, all night. She eats everything in sight in every room. And when it comes to sex, she's just as bad. She welcomes any man that passes by. Another loathsome, miserable type is from a weasel. Undesirable in every way. Uncharming, unalluring. She's sex-crazed, too, but any man who climbs aboard her will get seasick. I I feel like this guy has an axe to grind. (laughs) I feel, yeah. Welcome to the Greeks, man. And she steals from neighbors and from sacrificial feasts. Another type, a horse with flowing mane, gave birth to. She avoids all kinds of work and hardship. She would never touch a mill or lift a sieve or throw the shit outside or sit beside the oven. All that soot. She'll only touch her husband when she has to. She washes off her body every day, twice, sometimes even three times. She rubs herself with perfumed oils. She always wears her hair, combed out and dressed with overhanging flowers. Such a wife is beautiful to look at for others. For her keeper, she's a pain. Unless he is a king or head of state, who can afford extravagant delights? Another type is from an ape. I'd say that Zeus made her the greatest pain of all. Her gift to man, her face is hideous. This woman is a total laughingstock. When she walks through the town, she has no neck, no butt. She's all legs. You should see the way she moves around. I pity the poor man who holds this horrid woman in his arms. She's well-versed in every kind of trick, just like an ape. What's more, she has no shame. She doesn't care if people laugh at her. 
She'd never think of doing something kind to anyone. She plots the whole day long to see how she can do the greatest harm. Another type is from a bee. Good luck in finding such a woman. Only she deserves to be exempt from stinging blame. The household that she manages will thrive. A loving wife beside her loving man, she'll grow old, having borne illustrious and handsome children. She herself shines bright among all women. Grace envelops her. She doesn't like to sit with other women discussing sex. Zeus gratifies mankind with these most excellent and thoughtful wives. But by the grim contrivances of Zeus, all these other types are here to stay side by side with man forever. Yes, Zeus made this the greatest pain of all, women. If she oh seems God. to want to help, <laughs> this is, we're, we're almost done, but like. I say, we just got you, through the first stanza. <laughs> no, we're almost done. Yeah. We're almost done. If she seems to want to help, that's when she does her keeper the most harm. <laughs> a man who's with a woman can't get through a single day without a troubled mind. He'll never banish hunger from his house. Unwelcome, hateful lodger, hostile God. Just when a man seems most content at home and ready for employment, by the grace of God or man, that's when she'll pick a fight. Her <laughs> battle helmet flashing full of blame. A household with a woman is at a loss to give a decent welcome to a guest. The wife who seems the most restrained and good, she's the most disastrous of them all. For while her slack-jawed husband gapes at her, the neighbors laugh at how he's been deceived. Each man will diligently praise his own and blame the next man's wife. We just don't see that we all share alike in this hard luck. Oh, my God. <laughs> For Zeus made this the greatest pain of all and locked us in a shackle hard as iron and never to be broken. Ever since the day that Hades opened up its gates for all the men who fought that woman's war. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Bunch of bitches. And if it made it, it made it all the way to today. So it was obviously pretty popular. Well, so here's the thing. So I wanted to start this episode because what we're going to have to do now is is just like we set up the culture for Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to set up the culture for the New Testament. We're going to have to set up what the culture looked like in approximately, you know, between like 40 CE and like, you know— 100 CE, which is when most of these epistles were written, mm -hmm. like somewhere in there, we have to do a, some cultural setup so that we can understand culturally what was going on. So, Can I tell you a joke? Oh, yeah. It's a Greek joke. Oh, yeah. So three women die, and they stand before Zeus, and instead of getting the boat across the river Styx, he is going to allow them to fly across. All they have to do is jump off a cliff, name a bird, and they'll get to the other side, heaven, okay? okay. So there's a brunette. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I think Venus we all just figured this out. Yeah. So the brunette comes up. She walks to the edge of the cliff. And she jumps off, and she screams, make me an eagle. And she flies beautifully across over into, what is it called? What's the name of the heaven in the Olympus? Greeks? Not Olympus. No. There's a name for it. Anyway. I don't know. The, the heavenly place. Uh, so then a redhead walks up. She goes to the edge of the cliff and she jumps off and she says, make me a hawk. And she flies like <gasps> a beautiful hawk all the way across. Okay. What this? What this to Elysium. Elysium. Okay. And then the blonde walks up. 
thinks for a moment and says, I have been left with no choices. Oh, yeah. Jumps off the cliff and says, make me a penguin. (laughs) The end. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It wasn't a Greek joke. I just threw the Zeus thing in there. It's just a blonde joke. I know tons of blonde jokes. All right. Take us to it. Tell us what the Greeks did and how much they hated women. Well, a lot. A lot, actually. (laughs) Like a lot. Okay. So, so I actually wrote a paper on this poem my senior year in uh, in college because I had to take a class on classical Greek literature that would fulfill the final credit for my women, gender, and sexuality studies minor. So I want to say that more clearly because there is a reason why the class, which was on classic Greek literature, fulfilled that particular requirement instead of like a literary requirement. Mm-hmm. Okay or a history requirement, or a language arts requirement. Uh, Gender relations in ancient Greek were, by our standards, which can still tend to be pretty piss poor, they were appalling, as you can clearly see based on this poem. It seems like he loved women. What are you talking about? Yeah. I just, my phone went ding, ding. I have a friend, I'm bringing her lunch, I'm bringing my friend's family dinner today because she had surgery, so she Mm. was letting me know how she's doing okay. Um, But anyhow, so that's why this particular class filled that requirement. So I had to spend an entire semester combing through ancient Greek and Roman literature in order to um, understand and parse out the gender relations in that culture. Because even gender relations then created such a—because Greek was such a widespread culture— it created the sort of foundation for even how we in the West, how gender relations exist in the West now. Mm-hmm. That was the point of the class. We're talking 2,000 to 3,000 years later, the Greek culture was so influential in Western thought that some of their gender relations we see echoed through till today. That's mm. why this class was so important. But it was absolutely like appalling. So let's just do like, I want to do a quick timeline setup because when we talk about Greece, that's pretty, it's a, it's a long period right. of time. Yeah. So you have the classical Greek period, which is where a lot of the, you know, kind of like the references in art that I'm, poetry and stuff that, like Simonides that we just read. The classical Greek period is where a lot of this is going to be coming from. So that's from about 480 to 323 BCE. Um, the Hellenistic period, which is what would have influenced Paul mm-hmm. and Paul's approach the Hellenistic period was from 323 to, like, some people say 146 BCE, which is when, like, the Achaean War happened and Rome fully overtook Greece. But some people say that it was closer to, like, 30 BCE, depending on who you are, because that's when Cleopatra died. So, um 323 BCE is when Alexander died, and that marks the beginning of the Hellenistic period. So Alexander the Great was schooled and trained in Greek, um, thought in Greek literature, in Greek forms of government. And so when he went out a conquering, he established this system in all the places that he conquered. So when we say the quote-unquote Greco-Roman world, it's because because of Alexander the Great, the way the Greeks thought, the way that they argued, the way that they studied, the way that they believed, their conceptualizations of philosophy, that became standard practice everywhere. That's why we even have the Septuagint to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. Because when he conquered Egypt and set up, you know, 
his people as being in charge, right? Alexandria. Like, yeah. It was, they were like, well, we got to take this really important book and like turn it into Greek so that it can be relevant. It's, I'm exaggerating. Right, but yeah. But that's why we have it. And that's why we have the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. And then that's, of course, that's the, then, then why I have the Vulgate, which mm -hmm. is the last Latin version of the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. So that's how influential this period of time was. Um, and then the Hellenistic period, the Roman Empire is what started in like 146 BCE to 330 CE. So the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire had this little period of time where they were overlapping. The Romans were like super in love with the Greeks. They thought they were brilliant and smart. When you look at their art and you look at their practices, the Romans adopted a lot of their style of comedy, a lot of their style of poetry, um, the Greek bathhouses they adopted. They adopted a lot of Greek culture because they were like totally impressed with them. And even though they conquered them, they wanted to preserve their way of doing things because they admired it, mm -hmm. right? Sure. So that's where that overlap happens. Um, I want to, so when you think about like Greece, quote unquote, who do you think of? Well, Alexander the Great is what I was thinking of. Okay, so Alexander the Great, he died like 323, so he's doing his whole thing. What are some other famous Greeks? Listen, y'all watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Throw some at me. Archimedes. Archimedes. Is he Greek? Yeah, but— Sounds Greek. I'm thinking like Socrates. Socrates. Plato. Plato. Aristotle, okay. right? Yeah. Like these are—thanks <laughs> for blowing that <laughs> set up. I was like having an entire brain fart. Yeah, I really was. I just like so, stopped. Hey, is Socrates Greek? Socrates, 469. <laughs> Plato, 428. You know, Aristotle was like in the 300s. Well, like, yeah, now it seems obvious. Yeah. Holy gracious, you guys. I was thinking, I was thinking Socrates. Yeah. Am wait, I right, close? Right. Yeah, that's what that, that's. <laughs> that's what I was trying you, to come are you up with, me too, off but in your I brain? literally couldn't. I couldn't. My brain was not. But we're talking like, but like. I was thinking like food, you no. know, like. You I love guys, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. All right. Let me start over. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the most well-known names in Greek outside of you twos. That this is mainly, they were but that's mainly philosophy, though, right? It's, oh, absolutely. Because I, I'm yeah. thinking along the lines of like mathematics, and I'm thinking along the lines of no, yeah. We're yeah, talking yeah. about Zeno. we're Was talking Zeno about culture, <laughs> and we're talking about philosophy. We're talking about some of the greatest minds that right. argued and engaged. Yeah, sure. In in stuff Greek culture, today. the even, stuff that we still learn today. Even the in people some who have been in high school. Still show up in, in high school education and in popular culture. Mm -hmm. Socrates is the great right. in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Mm -hmm. You know, they go and collect him for their little project, yeah. right? Because that's how influential these people were. So let's talk a little bit about how those people came to be. There was a certain structure of ancient Greek culture that continued through the Hellenistic period. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. How Socrates came to be Socrates, how Plato came to be Plato, how Aristotle came to be Aristotle, how Aristophanes came to be Aristophanes, you know, great, great Greek playwrights, mm -hmm. how Simonides came to be Simonides. Greek culture was very segregated along sexual lines. We've talked about this before. Women were in charge of the house, the oikos, and men were in charge of the polis, the political, political thought life. Mm -hmm. These two realms were were very segregated. What women did was what women were doing. What men did was what men were doing, right? And that began shortly after primary school. The Greek culture 
and the region of Greece is, is large. And the United States loosely based its democracy on Greek democracy for a reason. Part of that is the, like we have all the states that have their sort of their own rights. Mm-hmm. Greek was Greece was kind of the same way. Like each individual city had its own schools, its own, they had like general laws and rules that everybody abided by. And it was a democracy, but each mm-hmm. city kind of had its own, also its own rules and its own way of doing things. Yeah. So each city had kind of its own educational system. So when I speak broadly, I'm saying in general, there were differences. For example, Sparta, we all saw the 300, yeah. right? The Spartans, the warrior class. After Greek had become established and their military training sort of gave way to like a secondary education that was more based on athletics, which is where we get like the Olympics from. Mm-hmm, right. Um, Sparta still kind of stayed badass, Mm -hmm. for example. So like you can't necessarily, like Sparta might've had slightly different rules, but for the most part, if your family could afford to send you to school and school was legal for girls, it wasn't always. Primary school was was the last time that you saw boys and girls in the same space. Hmm. After that, girls' education continued at home. If they were lucky and they had a mother that knew how to read and they had a mother that knew about art and culture— if they had a slave that knew something, Mm -hmm. they might continue their education. But from that point on, the basics of like math and like, you know, how to speak, that was the end of her education. Mm. And all she knew was how to run a household, how to order the right amount of flour for the month. Her education became totally about how to run a household. Mm -hmm. Men's education, because they were in charge of politics. You remember, women weren't allowed to vote. Women weren't considered citizens in Greek culture. Women were completely irrelevant. Listen, you listen to how Seminides characterized them. Mm-hmm. Women yeah. were like annoying and kind of a burden. You had to put up with them because that's where your kids came from. Right. They go over here. So the education of men began in secondary school, which was gymnasium. Okay. Mm-hmm. <sighs> gymnasium. Yeah. That's that was basically secondary school. So military training gives way. But men are still like going to the gym every day. And from about the ages of 12 to 18, they had what was called a gymnarch, who was like the guy in charge of the gym gymnasium. Oh, the original PE teacher. The original PE teacher. Wow, with like those yeah. short shorts and you put them in there yeah. and you, yeah. Yeah. So the like these guys were in charge of like guarding the boys and the boys were walked to school by a slave that also had a particular name that was designed to protect them as they walked them to school. And when they got to school, they did PE, they did language arts, they did history, and they did dancing, and they did poetry, hmm. right? And they would continue in this in this this sort of like uh, you know educational system until they were about 18, 19. Then they would kind of like graduate, and some of them would go on to a, like a like a what's what I'm looking for? Like a college. Yeah, like a college, but um, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? What is it? A technical, like a technical education where you oh, learn like a, a trade? Cra- like a trade. Thank you. Okay. Someone go on to a trade, you know, and then someone also continue on to like a college. And that's where like, you know, you would really dig into like philosophy. Like university. And university school, and all this yeah. other stuff. And then when they were about 30, they would take a wife hmm. and settle down. She would be about 14. Oh, wow. So her wow. whole entire life after primary school was just like how to bake bread and do basic house chores. His education had been extensive. And now this 30-year-old man is given a teenage girl 
And that's supposed to be like his com- quote unquote companion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which we, he would have had absolutely nothing in common with, basically. Absolutely yeah. nothing. And her level of education, as described, right? right? Her level of education generally, probably. Right. She would have been lower. a child. She would she have been acted a child. like a child. Yes. She wouldn't have had the knowledge he had in a hundred ways. Right. That being would just not be interesting at all. But would him. have been, yeah. you yeah. know, I'm sure among women it was promoted. And, you know, mothers training their children to be ready to take a man. And, like, in that culture, even though we see it as wrong today, we look, you know, in their culture, they probably saw it yeah. as right. That's, right. I'm, I'm sure that's true. Right? Yeah. At 14, yeah. you get married, and that's your Obviously, job there were some rebels in that, you know, but we— I mean, Yeah. And, and what's also important in terms of, like, sexually, like, a sexual segregation, too, like, girls' virginity was highly prized, and in boys, it was not. Mm. So— I just want to do, like, this is where the trigger warning comes in because everything that happens from now on is so abhorrent and disgusting to me. It's really difficult to talk about. And if you have any history of abuse, it's going to be really difficult to talk about. And I just want to preface the rest of the conversation with that. Okay. I'll try to remember to put a little trigger warning in at the top. Yeah, (laughs) is this what you were warning me about? Yeah, so— Okay. One of the reasons why gymnasium was the place where education continued— And this is one of those things that we talked about in the previous episode. If you missed it, I was making a joke about a play called Clouds. In this play, there's a young man who is being um, wooed by like the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other other shoulder. In the play, they're called Good Argument and Worse Argument. Mm -hmm. They are battling for this man's um, mentor, mentee. It's a mentor-mentee relationship. These Mm -hmm. are two mentors, and they're trying to convince this guy to learn how to be a person based on them. One of Good Argument's discussions talks about gymnasium and how, like, you know, in his day, you know, men learned how to be quiet. They respected their elders. They did what they were told, you know, and the result was a fine physique, a nice rounded rump, and a tiny prick. Right. That was the, the goal. The reason that was the goal was because the 14-year-old male body was the epitome of Greek sexual attraction. Hmm. Pre-pubescent boys, no hair on their skin, no hair on their face, but like just starting to have a sexual awareness was the absolute epitome of sexual desire. This is one of the reasons why Ancient Greek art depicts men naked but women clothed. It's because women's bodies weren't even considered worthy of sculpting. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Um, because they were pig foxes. They were pigs. They were pig, pig fox foxy people. monkey. Yeah, they were pig fox monkey. And and this also goes back to something else. The gods created them different. Mm. There's an there's another conversation that we're gonna continue to have based on like men's ideology of of women and what happened at creation. Mm, okay. So within the context then of these young boys that are going to gymnasium and are being enculturated to take over the realm of public life, they're le- they're gonna be lawyers, legislators, they're gonna be art creators of art. This is all upper class. There was a mentorship program embedded within gymnasium called pederasty. And in a pederastic relationship, you had an older man who was um, the, I want to get this right, because I always used to get him screwed up in, when I was in class, the Erastes. He was the older man, and the younger man was the Eromenos. 
A pederastic relationship began when the Erastes would literally court the Aramanos with like gifts, usually like financial gifts, but also rabbits and small game. And if the Eramanos's father approved of the courtship, then the Eramanos and the Erastes would go on a camping trip. Mm, I see where this is headed. And in Athens especially, there were lots of laws that allowed the Erastes, excuse me, the Eramanos to, when they came back from that camping trip, deny or accept the mentorship based on whether or not um, the Eramanos raped him. Mm. or the Erastes, or was inappropriate in some way. Now, if the unfortunate reality is if the Aramanos accused the Erastes of being sexually inappropriate, then their likelihood of accessing this mentorship program, which was the only way to really really, um, climb the ladders of Greek life, was essentially trash. Zero. (laughs) And Uh, um, they had to come home knowing that their father had given them permission to go on this camping trip because their father approved of this man. And it probably been through the same thing, right? Yeah. And again, we don't make laws unless there's a behavior that's already being engaged. So there was a law on the books that allowed, and this is just Athens. I don't, like I said, each city had their own like gymnasium. So we try to kind of try to piece together. We know that this law existed on the books in Athens. We don't know how this law worked out in like Olympus or Pompeii or Sparta or any of these other places, right? But we all, we can kind of like extrapolate. Again, we're painting a whole picture about a society, about America. It's like, again, if five, if a thousand years from now, people are trying to paint the picture of what American society is like based on six seasons of the American Housewives. Right. And like, yeah, the Housewives of Atlanta and the Housewives of New York and the Housewives of Miami, there's going to be a certain, you're going to be able to like extrapolate a lot about culture, but it's also kind of relegated to the realm of the very, very rich. This was a very, very rich society. These are the people at the top. Then this pederastic relationship begins. And that is how all young boys are enculturated into the political life. It is with What's, your but, sorry. What yeah, was the law that that if the that the pederastic relationship would not be um, codified, that boy did not belong to that man. Okay. If okay. if that man caused him harm, sexual Got harm. It. Got it. Right. Okay. So that was like kind of like the start. That was like the beginning of that relationship. Mm. But but this is how they had access. This is how young men had access to like symposiums. This is how they had access to like dinner parties. This is how they had access to political debates. This is how they had access to different teachers at the gym. So they would go to school and they would learn, but then it was like, it was their Erastes. It was their lover that like took them to parties, took them to, you know, help them rub shoulders and elbows in the right places. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like baked into society and culture as this like perfectly natural mentorship program that is how boys learned how to be men properly. And this was a common practice in society. Within that context, there's a lot of problematic issues to discuss. Number one, let's start with acknowledging that the sexual component was a hotly debated issue. You've heard the term platonic relationship. Yes. What does that mean? Plato, 
that where it came from? Oh, I know what well, platonic. Well, yeah, so but, a, is, sexless, right? Sexless, right. It's because that's the relationship Socrates had with Plato. So Socrates was Plato's Erastes. Ah. And Plato was the Eramenos. Aristotle was Plato's Eramenos. And Plato was the Erastes, right? So Socrates, and then later on, this other Greek writer named... Um, Plutarch and he, Plutarch, Plutarch, Plutarch. He Plutarch. wrote that Plutarch. Right. Plutarch wrote like 400 years after Socrates, and yet they were making the same argument. So that sort of implies because we don't exactly know when pederasty sort of fell out of favor, um, because obviously no one's doing it today to that same degree. It, we would call it grooming today. Yeah, we would call it grooming. Um, so I don't know exactly. We don't know exactly when, like that sort of like. Well, after I mean, if it's, if it's non-sexual, it would be mentoring. Yeah, so it's a mentorship program, and that's where we get the term platonic because Socrates was a well-known um, uh, opponent of the sexual aspect of the pederastic mentorship program because, and I quote, of the great harm it could do a boy. Mm-hmm. Plutarch and Plato really? and Socrates. Yeah, there's even like Aristophanes is a playwright. So in Plato's Symposium, so Plato writes this book, this play like Symposium, right? And what 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 that essentially is, is a, um, I'm just gonna, I, so it's a philosophical text. And what it depicts is a friendly contest, like contest of like these extemporaneous speeches given by a group of noble men that are at a banquet. So- they all come to a, a banquet. They're all like chilling at the table and each one kind of gets up and like pops off with their whole big like, you know, argument about stuff. Some of the main people there are Socrates, Aristophanes, who's the playwright, and Alcibiades, who is this like political figure. And the speeches are being given in praise of Eros or the God of love and desire. So they're talking about all these different like, you know, lofty ideas about love and this and that. And so within Symposium, there's this, piece where um, Aristophanes is praising Socrates because he's like always trying to impress him at gymnasium. Oh, because by the way, everyone's naked in mm. gymnasium. You train in the nude. Yeah, Everybody's well, the naked. the Olympics were done in the nude. Everything's done in the nude. Yeah. Because all of these older Erastes liked to sit around and stare at young naked boys. That's why they were naked. And there were laws against things. That's why they had the, the 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 gymnarch. There's a law on the books in like Olympus that the gymnarch, if they're not allowed to let certain men come into the room, they're not allowed to let certain people like, you know, if, if someone has a history of X, Y, and Z, they're not allowed to be around the boys. And there's like, when when playwrights wanted to make fun of someone or like tell, talk about someone as being like gross, they would talk about how these guys would like basically go in and 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 masturbate to the imprints of the boys' butts and genitals left in the dirt at gymnasium. Wow. They were disgusting. And yeah. like I would say this all the time in my class and get like in trouble for being like ethnocentric. Like you're just looking at this culture through your lens. No, I'm looking at this culture through the lens of a person who has read enough psychology to understand just how deeply damaging child abuse is. Yes. And the fact that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Plutarch are like, this is gross, attests to the fact that I'm not the only one that thought this was gross. Well, right. the fact that the fact that it's used it's used as a slur, which you just talked yeah. about, the imprint of the da 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 da, yeah. da shows that I mean there would have been a 
a reasonable segment of society that probably wasn't okay with it. Wasn't the, okay with it. But the, the problem was what you said. You have this mentorship program, mm-hmm. a camping weekend, which <laughs> uh, that, yeah. might, that might be a thing you save for after you learn somebody how somebody is, not, not right. at the beginning of the relationship. Yeah. And, and then the sort of pressure where if something does happen, there are societal reprisals for coming out, the possibility of not being able to get a mentorship, which would provide you with yeah. – you know, a good life theoretically. Right. That's right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's yeah. So, so it's like it's like both ways. It's like it sounds like probably everybody knew exactly what was happening. Yeah. But there were enough people that didn't think it was cool, but not enough to change it. I guess not well, enough. Well, eventually, to, eventually must have changed it because it right, doesn't exist sure. anymore. Yeah. Well, but, the fact that Socrates is so famous tells you how radical he was. You don't get to be that famous by not being radical in your culture. That's also true. Yeah. 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 There was so there was there was there was nothing there's nothing wrong with the idea of a mentorship program. The problem was with this embedded sexual component. Right. And like I have with me right now the source book for a lot of these kind of like basic documents. And like some of the pederastic poetry that I had to read in order to like get through this class is like really it's really telling because it tells you the Erastes were constantly being accused of and painted the picture of just being like panting dogs after these boys. Hmm. Just panting dogs. They are like, and, and what's interesting is the epitome of their sexual desirability is when they were the closest to femininity. Hmm. Once the boys started to grow hair, their desirability was was lost. They were the most sexually attractive when they were the closest to looking like girls. Wow. Right before puberty was complete. Let me read some of this pederastic poetry. Boy, since the goddess Cyprus gave you a lusty grace and your beauties every boy's concern, listen to these words and for my sake take them to heart, knowing how hard it is for a man to bear desire. Boy, as long as your cheek is smooth, I'll never stop praising you, not even if I have to die. For you to give still is fine. For me, there is no shame in asking. Since I'm in love at your knees, I beg. Respect me, boy. Give pleasure. If you're ever to have the gift of Cyprus with her wreaths of violet. When it's you who's wanting and approaching another, may the goddess grant that you get exactly the same response. Hmm, wow. When it's your turn to rape a little boy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You guys. That's, yeah, yeah. And just like, yeah, poetry. Because here's the best part about the pederastic relationship. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest concerns that Socrates and Plutarch had is that the eramenos, the love beloved, was to receive no sexual pleasure. And as a matter of fact, if the eramenos did receive sexual pleasure, well, that made him a fag. Are you serious? I am dead serious. Wow. That's weird. The point, like, that's why he said that. Like boy, such a weird when conflict. I approach you, give me pleasure so that someday when you, are, when you approach a boy, he'll give you pleasure. Their job was to provide their body for the Erastes to use for their own sexual pleasure and to receive none in return because that made him like a bitch, didn't it? Wow. It was gross. Wow. Disgusting. Now, was pointing to, be to fair, the power thing that I think fair, you're going to. To be fair. Most of the time, 
the form of pleasure was something called intercrucial, hmm. which was when the Aramanos put their thighs together and the Rastis used the thighs. And so when you look at a lot of vases, like I was telling you before. Mm-hmm. Use the thighs in a sexual way. Use the thighs in a sexual way. Because the podcasters couldn't see what you were showing Oh, us. excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah. So a lot of the art that exists, you can, Google, you can Google pederastic art, vases describing pederasty. Mm-hmm. And you will find any variety of artistic vases that were clearly commissioned. So by the way, women had to live in homes where the art right was commissions of was their husbands commissions of their husbands sex having sex with little boys, boys. Hmm. just by the way just keep that in mind you can't say i can't say it often enough that history is just so wild because i and i cannot underscore this enough these guys were not gay they had women at home they had wives they were sleeping with their wives right Probably for children only because they were having sex For the with sake boys. of children only. Yeah, women were like, and I, I've got a really, there's like this terrible, like, yeah. So the, the book that I'm, that I'm looking at uh, right now is called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents edited by Thomas K. Hubbard. This is the book that I bought for my, my class. There is this one, uh, I think it's Erotes by Pseudolichen. I can't remember, but there's this one particular piece of art. It's like another thing. They're always like sitting around the table chatting or like hanging out, dancing at a thing. And then everyone just pops off with these like giant monologues. Those are like a lot of the art that you see. Mm -hmm. And embedded within that is arguments. And so it's rhetorical because it's only one person who's writing it. So a lot of the times that style of art is this kind of like rhetorical argument. You see Paul execute it consistently in the book of Romans. It's a rhetorical style if you are a single author. Oh, where he's asking questions of himself and answering himself. Well, what he's doing is he's he's asking questions that he's interrogating the culture. He's interrogating culture. And that's what a lot of these these ancient like art is, like Plato's Symposium. Plato wrote it. It's only one guy who wrote it. But he's got all these different voices offering speeches. That just blows my mind. So when we talk about like divinely inspired. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when Paul is writing the book of Romans, is it written in a different style than his other letters or does he maintain that style? What's fascinating yeah. is that, so there are seven undisputed Pauline epistles. Uh-huh. They are Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Philemon, and I believe Ephesians, and then there's one more. Thessalonians? No. Not those, huh? Mm -mm. Those are the undisputed Pauline epistles because his rhetorical style and his use of the Greek is consistent. Mm. First and second Timothy, first and second Thessalonians, and Titus, uh, those are disputed Pauline epistles because the rhetorical style and the style of Greek used are like entirely different. Mm. So Paul did not write those. Someone else wrote them in the style of Paul and then signed his name to them in order to gain some kind of 
um, credence or authenticity. But that's why we call it pseudo lichen because lichen was a was an, was an author as well. And the, some of the pseudo lichen pieces are attributed to lichen, but like the language is different enough that we're not really sure we can say that or not. So we still quote from those pieces of literature because they're they speak to a particular time. Yeah. But we call it pseudo lichen because we don't know for sure that he wrote it. Wow. So those pieces are included in canon and we read them and that's cool. But Paul didn't write them. Like Paul didn't write them. Mm. So just know that when you're reading it. Mm -hmm. And within the book of Romans, there is one particular section of the Greek that makes a giant leap. Like it's very, very different. It's either that he has written, like either it was inserted by later scribes as they were copying and recopying the book of Romans, the, the letter, or Paul is quoting something that's well-known. Paul's quoting culture. And that particular- well, I was say, where is that at? The part where he talks in Romans 1 about they were depraved and they gave themselves over. From 18 on. Yeah, right, from the, 118 on. Where the particular passage that says even women traded their natural relations for unnatural ones, mm -hmm. that's the section where that particular language shifts and it is no longer the Greek that we know that, that Paul would use. Really? Yeah. But we're going to get there. How about that? We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Because I personally choose to believe, based on the arguments I read, I don't believe it was added later. I believe, along with, with Pamela Eisenbaum, that Paul was quoting culture. He was using rhetorical argument to speak to the Romans who were obsessed with the Greeks and followed along their culture lines, right? He was writing to these people that this was the culture they came out of. Mm-hmm. And so he was talking to them. I think he, I personally think that he was quoting. But back to the, back to the, back to the Romanos Erastes. So, so there's this one symposium where this guy is, is talking about women and like what an absolute burden they are. And he literally declares, I think it's, so I think it's in Erotes. I think it's in Erotes. And I think Pseudolichen wrote it. And I think that's where this comes from. But he's basically saying women are such a friggin' burden that like, we basically should just chain them up and use them as breeding mules. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Man. That's so now, keep in mind, not everybody felt this way. Sure, of course. Socrates is well known for having loved his wife. Mm. He loved his wife. He probably taught her. He probably married somebody that had the potential. And because he was so deeply invested in uplifting humanity, he taught her too, probably. He loved his wife. And that's the thing that um, Aristophanes, who is in later other art and other poetry and other um, comedies will poke fun at Aristophanes because Aristophanes probably actually was gay. Like in real life, mm -hmm. Aristophanes never got married and Aristophanes lived his life with another artist and Aristophanes quaffed his hair and put on makeup and perfumes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That was normal because when men, because like I just read, boy, as long as your face is smooth, I will never stop loving you. The social rejection that some of the Eramanoses felt after they had been showered with affection and gifts and given access as soon as they hit puberty and started and to turn into men. Yeah. yeah, when they stopped looking like girls, they would just like kick them to the curb <laughs> and go get another younger man. I mean, it's essentially as gross as what you would say about like the typical approach to like the 18-year-old girl being the, so she's my cherry pie, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's that, only it was teenage boys, young boys. And they would just like kick them to the curb. So lots of men 
would try and prolong that period of desirability by like shaving their hair and kind of wearing uh-huh. their hair in a feminine fashion and sort of like dressing in a certain way, perfuming themselves in a certain way. Because they didn't get married till they were like 30. But they would get abandoned by these people who said they loved them, hmm. you know, when they were like 18. And so they would try to like prolong it, right? And so wow. Aristophanes never stopped doing that. And mm. so people would make fun of him and poke fun at him and stuff, but it was also kind of like lighthearted. So there almost did seem to be whatever. They'd be like, ah, eh, whatever. That's just kind of like how he is, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, a little bit, a little bit like you'd poke yeah, fun at a friend. Aristophanes makes this joke about like how he would try to, he was like talking about how Socrates, because again, you got to think about Plato's Symposium. It is, they're giving these speeches praising love to Eros, who is the god of love. And Aristophanes is saying like, Socrates is the best because I was always trying to seduce him at gymnasium by looking super good. And this one night we had to sleep together and I kept cuddling him and trying to get him to like do stuff. And Socrates was like, bruh, like go to sleep. (laughs) You're you're touching. Go to sleep. And in that argument, he even says something like, I love my wife, back off. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So like, so back to this idea that Enjoyment of the sexual process was the gift that the Aramanos was expected to give the Erastes, and there was no hope for um, for pleasure being returned. Mm-hmm. But within this context, actual penetration wasn't really— mostly the boys were being molested. They were being fellated mm-hmm. or, or being asked to perform mm-hmm. fellatio, and they were having this, like, there was a lot of fondling going on and there was this this inner crucial activity. And yeah. you see a lot of vases, like these young boys just like standing there with their knees bent to create space in the thighs, which again suggests that these guys actually wanted, they were actually like trying to mimic having sex with women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oddly, yeah. <laughs> because I don't think these men were gay. I think their first experience and exposure to sexuality was predatory abuse. Hmm. And then they spent the rest of their manhood confusingly trying to sort that out in a culture that taught them that this was the epitome of love and mentorship and access. And that women would often then, because we know, as we know, abused people abuse others. Women became the garbage dump for all these men's self-hate. Right. Women became the garbage dump. Because they couldn't turn it anywhere else. They couldn't turn it anywhere else. Yeah, but it was socially acceptable probably on the women. Yeah. Mm. So women women became the actual absolute trash heap of all these men's shame and disgust and self-hate. Wow. And you had Socrates. I, I, I kept a quote because I thought it was really, let's see if I can find it again. You guys at home can't see like this. My yeah. desk here is like just littered with books. And and again, you have to remember that like it's natural for people to want to experience sexuality. Men weren't allowed to get a wife until they were 30. Girls were kept under lock and key until they were of marriageable age, which was like 14 or 15. So the only access that boys had to any sort of sexuality. So first of all, they're being abused. And they're not allowed to receive pleasure. Although it's like, you guys, this is a wide range of stuff going on here. Sure. From Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, who are like not engaging in sex at all and in, but having the mentorship program, to men that kept a relationship with their Erastes throughout their whole life, 
Mm-hmm. Some Iramanos some kept their relationship with their Erastes. Some Erastes were dropping their Iramanos as soon as they got a beard and going and getting another one. Some of them had several throughout the course of their life. Yeah. I was curious when you said Aristophanes stayed with a man. Was it his... Was it the one that he was with from the beginning? Or? I don't think so. Okay, it was just Because they were the different. same age. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Also, within the vases and the painting of the vases, you have a lot of same age pairings. Mm-hmm. So these boys are being abused and then they're going to gymnasium and they're wrestling around with each other butt ass naked. Mm-hmm. And so they're all fooling around with each other too because that was the only place that you could exercise any sexual activity. Mm-hmm. So, and when it was boys kind of messing around with each other of the same age group and sort of consensually, I'm sure there was some pleasure involved. Well, I'm sorry. Because like, it was their only I'm, ass access. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, I'm sorry if this sounds gross, but this topic is gross. Yeah. But so the idea here is that you're trying to please this older man. Mm-hmm. And now you've got all of these boys. Oh, boys run together. They do their things together, right? They're probably even practicing on one another, trying to show them how to super please the person that they're with. Absolutely. You see what I'm saying? Like yeah. they're well, helping they also their want to know what it feels out. like. You're doing this to me. Sure. I right. want to know what yeah. this feels like. Yeah. And the thing is, these two boys, everyone's doing it to each other. And so the boys are like, this, well, yeah. yeah. All of this is warping their worldview. It's certainly coloring it. And it's creating a whole situation. I mean, or like Robin Scroggs, <laughs> Robin Scroggs wrote a book that was one of my sources for this study. And she says that, once men and women segregated that way, a professional man would leave his house and spend a full 24 hours never having to talk to a woman, be around a woman, see a woman, or have any kind of contact with a woman until he went home. Mm. Women didn't leave the house without a slave to protect them. I mean, even boys, because this culture of like abuse had created this, this heightened sexual environment. Mm. And again, I'm being reductive like right. I said, it was yeah. a, it was a wide spectrum. Yeah, sure. But the other part of that is that being the receptive partner, being the passive partner, if it did turn into anal intercourse, the receptive partner was immediately like the worst piece of shit. <laughs> In better arguing clouds, they're like, well, who are all the um, let me see if I can just find it and read it. But I mean, they're like, well, well, who are all the the legislators? They're like the wide asses. Well, who, oh, who that's are what all they're the, talking about. Who mm-hmm. are who are all the politicians? The wide asses. Who are all the lawyers? The wide asses. Basically, suggesting that within the pederastic relationship, in order to get where they wanted to go, there are certain boys who would sink to the level of uh, letting themselves yeah. be penetrated in order to achieve um, political, financial, mm. and social gain. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a slur. That was a slur. Right. That was the way that you that you humiliated someone. I mean, we still I mean literally We still do it. Yeah. Yeah, just we generally still do to it. women, but yeah. But I mean like if you are a gay man and you are at least masculine presenting, you'll get by in society. Mm-hmm. But if you are a gay man and you're feminine presenting, you better watch out. Yeah. Because we are still doing it to this day that gross thing that they were doing, which is denigrating women so deeply that if you are the receptive partner, you are no better than a woman. Mm. And yeah, expected to be a part of the behavior, just yeah. not going to that one particular point or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and one of Socrates, so so within the great debate around pederasty and the pederastic relationship, one of Socrates' greatest arguments is the fact that 
The boy can receive no pleasure and that's not fair and it's disgusting. And like, and he even says like, all he has to look at is a giant hairy belly. Good Lord. It's gross. Yeah, it is gross. <laughs> yeah. Now, Trust so me. because this is, uh, yeah. I have a very giant hairy, hairy belly. belly. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Holly. You don't want to look at that. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. So, 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 <laughs> all right. So within this construct of the argument, the great argument around pederasty and its sexual component, you've got all these people on all these different sides arguing. One of the arguments that began to happen for pederastic relationships is that it was more natural. It was more natural and more masculine for men to be attracted to other men. Wanting to sleep with a man and being attracted to a man was the epitome of masculinity because wanting it and admiring masculinity was tantamount to elevating it. Mm -hmm. And back to Seminides on women, there's this one particular... It's mentioned in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I don't have the energy to like Google it. What is it? Hedwig and the The Angry Inch? The The play play. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. The musical, to be specific. There's a song where there's the most popular song from Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I put on my makeup. No, it's about like looking for your other half. It's about when you're trying to find someone to love. That is based on an actual piece of Greek literature that suggests at the time where humanity was created, men and women were literally created differently. And like like mankind was broken apart and it has to try and like find its way back to itself. Mm-hmm. And so, so there- there's a uh, tear me down, wig in a box, in your arms tonight, exquisite corpse. Those are the names of the songs. Dang it. All right. Well, I guess it's not really relevant for our particular yeah, conversation. Yeah. Unless somebody listening to this is both a Greek scholar and an LGBTQAI advocate and is like, no, you idiot, it's this, right? Please email us. Let us know where we messed up. Good tunes, rock musical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah so you'd have to do some more Googling. But, but essentially, it was based on a piece of Greek literature. And what arose out of that piece Sugar of Greek— Daddy? No, what grows out of that literature? <laughs> that might also be Greek yeah. reference, referential, though. Well, it's 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 okay. It's it's fine. Yeah. Like I'm so sorry. Yeah, I just yeah. I'd never heard of it, and when? so I looked it up, and I'm like, the origin of love. That, the origin of love. See, bam. See, I That's did the it. work, and bam. That's the origin of love. All right. So, like, <laughs> let me just Google it really quick because I think that that would be. I have it right here, actually. The origin of love is based on a speech by Aristophanes in Plato's Symposium. The speech describes three different sexes, men attracted to women, women attracted to women, and men attracted to women. They were split in two by the gods, leaving them with the desire to seek out their other half. Hmm, wow. Yeah. So there were these men that argued that it was actually more natural for men to want other men, that that was like part of the design, and that men that wanted to be with other men was more natural than men who wanted to be with women because women could never— in any universe, be a proper intellectual and emotional partner for men because they were so very stupid. Yeah, I mean, if they didn't get a B, right? Yeah. If, if you he, didn't get a B, it, Socrates must have got a B. Socrates or, must have got a B. Well, and that's also a lot of pressure on women. A, maybe he got a fox, but Socrates was a really awesome dude, and he turned her into a B. Right. Well, or mm. maybe these fourteen-year-old girls were being married completely and totally sexually innocent to these men that had experienced all of their sexual maturation through an abusive process with other men 
as well as having like, because the thing is, is that there was also good. They learned a lot. They were given, they went to parties and they, you know, they, they got training and they learned philosophy and you know what I mean? They weren't always being abused sexually. Right. And that's what makes it confusing. But like all the servant boys were served naked. Like like, they would castrate their slaves to keep them looking more feminine. Oh yeah. Like when I watch Game of Thrones, like when I hear all this stuff you're talking about today, it's like, I'm thinking of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like the weird stuff on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. What was acceptable in their kingdoms and not and yeah. And like the widespread and rampant hypersexualization of young boys and the desire to keep them looking like as close to girls as possible. Like when you read the pederastic poetry, you know, your long lashes, your beautiful smooth skin, they're describing women. Because what's happening is, again, so this isn't about homosexual orientation, pederasty, no. It's about the cycle of abuse that creates and recreates in and on itself. Yes, some of these men probably were gay, Mm-hmm. But mostly what we're talking about here is lack of access to women, women being denigrated and treated as if they were not a valuable emotional or spiritual partner. Mm-hmm. And this argument that women could never possibly be the right partner for a man. And so it was natural for men. It was more natural and more masculine for men to partner with other men. Mm. Now, Socrates was like one of the guys that was like, nah, dude, nah, because only women can really enjoy the sex act. Mm-hmm. And it's natural for women to, it's natural for the sex act to include two partners of equal enjoyment. That is what is natural, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. That was one of those arguments. But it's important to remember because what we're about to do, now that we've laid this groundwork, mm-hmm. we're about to jump into Romans and the argument that Paul is making. Now let's set ourselves a little bit of a stage. Nine, at 146 is when Rome finally, like, it's the Achaean War, when Rome finally, mm-hmm. like, defeats the Greeks and, like, establishes itself. Mm-hmm. Everything I'm talking to you about ancient Greek society, the Romans were doing it, too. There's all these stories of Roman generals, like, raping the soldiers. The bathhouses have all these depictions of kind of pederastic style, like, um, graffiti that they found in Pompeii and, like, Mount Vesuvius and stuff when that mm-hmm. erupted. The the Romans were doing it too. Nero is very famous for like castrating his favorite slaves to keep them looking effeminate and even marrying one of them in this kind of iconoclastic display of power. Mm -hmm. Like I'm so great and so big. I can even marry one of my male slaves and none of you can touch me, Mm -hmm. right? Because again, men, men loving another man and wanting to be in relationship with them and like be in partnership with them that was not acceptable because it made one of those men a woman. And that's that's what was gross. Right. Because women are gross. Because women are pieces of shit. Mm-hmm. So that was the problem with loving male relationships is that it meant one had to be the woman and that was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this is the environment. You still hear that today though. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, you really, do, but you yeah. you hear that like whenever you're when someone's talking about a gay couple or whatever, and they were like, "Oh, who's the one that's the one? Who's right? the catcher?" Right. right. Yeah. Everyone becomes obsessed who's with the that receiver because yeah, yeah. we want to know who's the woman, right? Because we still live in a misogynistic society and culture. Still, and definitely yeah. less hard on the more masculine of the pair. Yeah. You. Yeah. Often almost completely passed over in the conversation. Exactly. Of the, the masculine of the two. Yeah, just completely this get a complete for pass. Me, yeah, wow. For me, I have a tender heart towards effeminate uh, presenting gay men. Mm-hmm. 
because I know the only reason they hate you is because they hate me. Mm. And I know that you are doing your best to just be who you are, despite this enormous amount of social pressure to be something you're not, because God forbid you be like me. Mm-hmm. Meaning a woman. Yeah. yeah. So I have a real tender spot in my heart for a feminine presenting gay men. Mm-hmm. So, which, you know, that's a whole other story. We don't necessarily have time for my personal history. And so we won't spend time on it. <laughs> Maybe we will one day. Yeah, well, we haven't really talked a whole lot about like we don't. You guys don't know anything about my personal, my right. family, my family structure, but that's irrelevant. So anyway, let's read Romans. Let's okay. just read it. I'm gonna get out my Bible. By the way, whenever Doctor Frost was here, he talked about process theologians, and Andy said, "I'm a process uh, theologian." Sort of a process I'm sort theologian. of a process theologian. <laughs> was he keep, down on it? I can't wait to listen. No, to he that wasn't episode. down on it at all. He was actually up on it. Well, I mean, right? I don't think he no. Was he down on it? Yeah, he he did not. He was explaining it as a method of dealing with the uh, infinity problem. Yeah. But it was not his answer because the oh, infinity problem right, is right, not right. his problem. That's right. That's right. You're exactly right. See, okay. sometimes I listen. You did listen. How about that? Well done, Andy. Even Andy can listen. All right. Even Andy. <laughs> Debatable, but go ahead. So I'm going to go back to Romans here just for a second because I want to create, I want to create, I want to, I want to set the stage. So what was happening in the time that Romans was written? Um, so um, it's about 50 CE. The historian Suetonus reports that in 49, the emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome because of disturbances over Christus, which is probably a mistake for, for Jesus Christ, right? There's this period of time where all the Jews are expelled from Rome and then that emperor dies and they're allowed to come back. And so now the Jews are back and they're trying to kind of like get back into relationship with the Gentile Christians that are like, have been running the show since they were all expelled. And that's the kind of cultural environment that Paul is writing in. And if you think about the book of Romans, the book of Romans has become over time, Paul's basic definition of faith. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's what Paul was getting at when he wrote it. I think that what Paul was doing was he was saying, you Gentiles and you Jews are coming at this Jesus Christ thing from two completely different backgrounds. And what you're doing is you're telling each other that you're the worst instead of just keeping your eyes on your own work. Yeah. So if you are a Gentile, you are doing all this other gross stuff, so quit it. And if you're a Jew, you are doing all this other gross stuff, so you quit it, right? Like, but what advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. He's saying to the Gentiles, now don't get down on the Jews because yeah. we're glad that we have them. They yeah, we receive the oracles of God. We receive the oracles of God through them. But if you're a Jew and you're acting like you're better than the Gentiles because of that, we're saved by grace, not by works, to so knock it off. Yeah. He's arbitrating this like pretty big argument, right? And what is that form of writing called again? Rhetorical. Is it rhetor- rhetorical writing? And it's well. I thought you said there was a. I thought there was another name. For there that is another before. name for it. Um, so some like a form of an argument where you question yourself. I can't remember. There was a. Yeah. Well, and then also there's other types. You know, you can you can. I'm not a. I'm not a Greek scholar. I took one class on ancient Greek literature when I was an undergrad. Yeah. Okay. And I've already learned so much more just from that one class and your extra research. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. if we spent decades studying it? What when we would I, learn? When I took this class, that's when um, the passage in Romans, the passage in Timothy, and the passage in Corinthians, that's for me when the scales from, fell from my eyes and I saw what they were talking about. I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. This was gross. Let me, just for 
just for fun, gentlemen, I'm going to read you because now we're about to read about Romans, but like, why not? Why not just get it all out? I'm going to read you a story. Plutarch, love stories. Then this is circa 735 BC to 730 BCE. BCE. Mm-hmm. So uh, these events, if historical, would have occurred around 735 to 730 BCE. The story is alluded to by Alexander of Aetola, an early Hellenistic poet. And it tells the story of an Argive family that settled in Corinth, which we all know as First and Second Corinthians. This Melissius had a son named Actaeon, the handsomest and most modest youth of his age, who had many lovers, chief of whom was Archias of the family of Heraclidia. In wealth and general influence, the most outstanding man in Corinth. Now, when he could not gain the boy by persuasion, when it says lovers, he had many people that were pursuing him for the Aramanos-Erastes relationship. But the boy was modest, which is another gross aspect of it. The more they fight off the men, you know, the more that they're like desired. So gross. Okay. So now when he could not gain the boy by persuasion, he determined to carry him off by force. Trigger warning for everyone. Trigger warning right now. Okay. So he got together a crowd of friends and servants, went in as a drunken frolic to the house of Melissius and tried to take the boy away. But his father and his friends resisted. The neighbors also ran out and pulled against the assailants. And so Actaeon was pulled to pieces and killed. The assailants thereupon went away. But Melissius took his son's body and exhibited it in the marketplace of the Corinthians, demanding the punishment of the men who had done the deed. But the Corinthians merely pitied him and did nothing further. So, being unsuccessful, he went away and waited for the Isthmian festival. When he went up upon the temple of Poseidon, shouted accusations against the Bacdi, and reminded the people of his father Hebron's benefactions. Whereupon, calling upon the gods to avenge him, he threw himself down from the rocks." Not long afterward, the city was afflicted by drought and pestilence, and when the Corinthians consulted the oracle concerning relief, the god replied that the wrath of Poseidon would not relax until they inflicted punishment for the death of Actaeon. Archias knew of this, for he was himself one of those sent to consult the oracle and voluntarily refrained from returning to Corinth. Instead, he sailed to Sicily and founded Syracuse. There he became the father of two daughters— Ortega and Syracusa, and was treacherously murdered by Telphus, who had been his beloved, that's mm. Eramenos, and sailed with him to Sicily in command of a ship. Wow. So, like, Corinth, when we read in 1 Corinthians the clobber passage of don't do this thing, this is one of the, like, major tales of the founding of the city of Corinth huh. is this young boy who was pulled apart to death by a raiding drunken group of rapists who are trying to steal him away from his father's house and rape him. Because, mm. yeah, because he didn't want to go. Because he was so go. cute. Yeah, he was cute yeah. and he resisted. Because he was cute and he resisted. Wow. Guys, listen, there's a lot of stuff that God really doesn't like and it's important for us to know what that stuff is. Child abuse of the degrading of young boys and the hypersexualization of young boys is part of it. So if you have a little boy and you call him a lady killer and you have a little boy and you say, oh, he's just flirting with the girls, knock it off. You're hypersexualizing a child. Stop it. Wow. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel passionate about what you just said? It's not, it's because the hypersexualization of boys is allowed. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. Yeah. Because it's a holdover from this cultural period of time. 
We make little jokes about our boys being flirty and being lady killers and all this other stuff. It's a holdover from when little boys were being sexualized early so that they could be the object of sexual desire while they were still prepubescent. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. We have got to start protecting and preserving the innocence of our boys the way that we do our girls. Mm -hmm. It's much in the same way that you described how God was taking Egypt out of the Israelites. Yes, he's taking Greece out of us. He's taking Greece out of us. Yeah, dude, for (laughs) real. I hadn't even thought of that, but it's true. Yeah, Like we really have got to stop with like the hypersexualization of of all of us, oh, really? Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I think non-binary people are the way of the future. That's my neighbor. It's fine. I'm ignoring everything today. I've gotten so many phone calls. A vet called. My, yeah, we're gonna we're well, we're gonna Just wrap to make up. Make sure it wasn't about Jubilee. No, because uh, Heather's got her. All right, so here we are in Romans. We've got the situation. This is the culture wherein Paul was raised. And here's the other thing. Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. Right. Paul was highly educated in Greek oratory skills mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in Greek literature and in Greek writing. You can tell by the way he wrote his Greek, this man was highly educated. Yeah. And he was el- educated. He was a Hellenistic Jew. So he was educated in all of this Greek style of culture. So the Hellenistic Jews are like doing their Jew thing with all these Greeks around him doing all of this stuff. And the Hellenistic Jews were like appalled. Mm -hmm. And they used to like tell their young boys, don't hang out with Gentiles because they all have chlamydia. Right. They used to tell them that. So like Jewish boys, like this is where a lot of the heat from like stay away from Gentiles, this is where this is coming from. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Again, you're living in a culture where no one is protecting these boys. Mm -hmm. No one's protecting the boys. Right. And so what are they doing? They're being preyed upon and then they're preying on each other because that's what happens to boys when they're abused. They Mm -hmm. become abusers. Right. And so you've got all these, so the Hellenistic Jews are like, don't hang out with those guys. Right. And they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. But what we as Christians today can understand is that what they should have been doing instead of judging the Gentiles for being nasty is trying to protect their boys from the cycle of abuse that these poor Gentile boys were trapped in. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about Romans, there is neither Greek. Nor Jew. Nor Jew. Nor male. Nor male, nor nor female. female, Nor nor slave, nor free. Nor free. Because these were the categories that the Romans were talking about. This is the categories of people. Right. You were either Greek or you were a Jew. Yeah, and those words are incredibly explosive yeah. to both sides of the coin, right? So there's neither Jew. Like, you just you did a great job just arguing like, hey, man, don't go there, Jew. Don't even try to, it's not by the law. It's not yeah. by, you know, it's not by works. For, so get over yourself. You know, so, it's a powerful, powerful piece of ancient literature, man. So I mean, it changed little, our world. Absolutely. So, you know, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship <sighs> to bring— Paul is so long-winded. Yeah. He always has been. Like, but a lot of letters in for so a lot of those. confusing too. Anyway, so then Paul's like, okay, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> He's just setting the stage. <laughs> right. 
Right. You so, don't mean blah 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 yeah. about the word. You just no, you're not, trying to not get to the point. Not in any way, shape, or form. Not in any shape or form. <laughs> I know. I'm so just the point is the power of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Now, right here is where in the original Greek, Paul's language shifts. Hmm. It shifts right here. Huh. But in the English, we don't get it. But scholars think either that it was inserted by later scribes or that Paul was in perfect alignment with the rhetorical style of the day, like Jesus used to do. Mm-hmm. And then they would quote something that everyone else would know. Yeah. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. By their wickedness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. This is all Aristotle and Plato. This is this is all part of their arguments. The way that you can use nature to like understand things. And this is also very Calvin later on. Mm-hmm. But like this is all normal Greek argument. So they are without excuse. For they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to the degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural and in the same way also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another." Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree— that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. From passing judgment on others, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, however, that when you judge those who do such things and yet you do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? And he goes on. So there will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Mm-hmm. That chunk of space where he's describing like evil people, it's very reminiscent in its ancient initial Hebrew of another text called the Wisdom of Solomon mm. that we have. And it that particular argument is very much in line with the way that Hellenistic Jews characterized the Gentiles and the Greeks as their way of protecting their boys from being intermingling with the Greeks, but also as a way of like maintaining a segregation from their culture. Mm-hmm. And again, when we talk about the sort of social environment that pederasty had crafted, there was this argument that men 
it was more natural for men to sleep with men than it was for men to sleep with women because women were so gross and useless, they could never possibly afford a proper emotional partner. Hmm. So what he's saying is women also exchanged their natural relations with men, which was one of partnership and love and connection and elevation because God gave men and women in his image. Mm -hmm. Women exchange natural relationship with men for unnatural relationship with women. Women were like, you know what? Screw you. You guys think we're pieces of shit? Fine. We'll just love one another. Mm -hmm. What, what Paul's talking about and what Paul is describing. So first of all, he's using rhetorical argument because then he says, if you pass judgment on those people, you're passing judgment on yourself. Knock it off. Right. Quit being so judgy. So first of all, Paul's not saying that that is what he believes. He's quoting the Hellenistic Jewish approach to condemning mm. Gentiles. Mm. That's what he's doing. That's why the language shifts in the Greek, in my opinion. Again, mm. we don't know because we weren't there. I've read several opinions about it. I don't think it was put in later by a scribe. I think Paul wrote it differently on purpose because I think he's writing in the, in the style of the wisdom of Solomon because he's trying to, he's actually quoting the Hellenistic Jewish approach and belief system about Gentiles. Mm. And part of that belief system was amongst the Gentiles that sex with women wasn't natural because women were such pieces of shit. That's just, yeah. Wow. That's what he's talking about. Wow. He's not talking about natural, loving relationships between a person with a homosexual orientation. He's talking about rejecting your own heterosexual identity in favor of a homosexual identity because it's the only place as a woman you can receive anyone to validate your identity. Mm -hmm. And for a man, because you've been so abused by men, you don't even know how to react to women anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Because none of these, most of these people weren't gay. Most of these people were heterosexuals that had been so right. abused and so discounted that they started engaging in homosexual relations because that was the only place they could, that was the only, that was the only recourse they had for managing their, their abuse. Yeah. I mean, it was acceptable as part of their yeah. culture for men Yeah, and women were left to themselves to figure it out. Yeah. Because they were treated like crap. They were treated exactly. like Exactly. They breeders. were educated and they- They weren't, and they weren't loved. They weren't honored. They no. weren't cherished. They as weren't lifted fact, up. In that, in the women poem, they were completely looked at. Denigrated, yeah, I mean. Yeah, and I wish I could remember the exact, I have it in the source document where the guy literally says oh, women should just yes. be kept chained in the basement for breeding purposes. <laughs> That's oh so crazy. If I was a woman in that period of time, I probably would have been a lesbian too. Mm-hmm, sure. Whether that was natural to my yeah, inborn orientation or not. Way you, you see the difference? You didn't have to have a miserable relationship, if, you know. Yeah, any way you could possibly feel love. And let's be honest, that's still true today. Yeah. That is still true today. I'm yeah. not saying that is for everyone, but I am saying that, you know, I even as a child, uh, after what I went through, yeah. I struggled with my identity and I yeah. wondered, you know, am I, you know, I asked myself the question, am I bisexual? You know, but yeah, uh, because of sure. what had happened to me, right? Yeah. And so by the time I become teen, I realized that I didn't have an attraction to men. What I had was the confusion about what sex was with men. Because of Because of, of what had happened. That's right. So then as I, of course, I fell in love and had a wife and kids and all that stuff, and those things went away. But I can see where it wouldn't for some. Right, sure. Yeah. And I could, you know what I mean? It depends on the level after. of abuse or, yeah. 
or whatever it might have been. And there are it's some men. For everybody. There are some men like Socrates, and there are some men that eventually got married and had wives. There are other people that wrote arguing that wives were good right. and it was okay it's and it's fine. But it's almost yeah. like yeah. it's like it's like oh, they're not all that bad, right? So there yeah. were men that were able to not. I mean, research shows us seventy percent of abused people become abusers. Seventy mm-hmm. percent of abused people become abusers. That means thirty percent of abused people don't. So it's possible that 30% of the male Greek culture was like grew out of that. Maybe their abuse wasn't that bad. Maybe mm-hmm. like the guy experienced sure. a bit of remorse. Yeah. And it's levels. Levels, it's levels. It's levels. It's a spectrum, right? So, yeah. but that is what Paul's talking about. Mm-hmm. That's what Paul's talking about. And a lot of people, a lot of people have, have, you know, one of their arguments against, you know, homosexuality is that God created the marriage and God created men and women to be, you know, a, a picture of his love for us and that that's why only heterosexual relationships are reasonable. Um, but I disagree. And what I believe is that God did create men and women as a picture of God's ultimate design. But every person walking on this planet is a combination of the egg and the sperm. Mm-hmm. We carry that war inside of us. Mm-hmm. And Jungian psychology, Jung believed that all men had an inner woman called an anima and all women had an inner male called the animus. And that learning how to make peace, men with their inner their div- their inner female and women with their divine male was kind of like the key to balanced and healthy life. And that when you had an unhealthy and unbalanced relationship with your own inner anima, then you as a man like overly objectified women, you had too much, you know, you had basically too much dude in you mm-hmm. and you were, uh, ha- had an unnatural expectation of women to fulfill a certain role and same with women. Yeah. So I do believe that there is a divine desire to reconcile man and woman, but I think that side happens internally and I think it happens culturally. I have met sure. gay men who despise women. And I have met gay women who despise men. Mm-hmm. That despising of the opposite sex, that God doesn't, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. That God doesn't like that. It's not God's ultimate design for women to only love other women and in the process of that become despisers of man. Mm-hmm. And it is not God's design that men, if they choose to love other men, become then despisers of women. That's not God's design. I also know a gay man who spent his entire career as an OBGYN in the military, deeply and passionately served women. And when I had my C-section and struggled with feelings of guilt and condemnation, I called him and he lovingly counseled me through it. Yeah. That man happens to have a homosexual orientation, but he doesn't hate women. Mm -hmm. He loves women. He's a champion for women. He fights for women. Right. That person is not failing God's design. Yeah, I think as with all things, like you said, it's a spectrum. All yeah. of us are on a spectrum of. I've talked about this in regard to autism in the past. You know, like I heard somebody say, everybody's on the spectrum. Like yeah. everyone kind of is on the spectrum is. somewhere yeah. in autism, which like I don't know. I'm well, but to say okay, everyone is autistic. That's a different. I don't look around and saying everybody's autistic, but he says everyone's on the autistic spectrum. When you say that, it's kind of like, do you, are you are you picking up what I'm trying to lay down here? Well, Kinsey says the same thing. K- K- Kinsey, 
Uh, I can't remember his first name. I had to read about him. Uh, There was a movie that Liam Neeson starred in called Kinsey. He was a professor of of biology. He was a professor of biology at first. And then he was counseling all these young couples that just like didn't understand how babies got born. And so they had all these like dumb ideas. So he started this giant project of doing like um, the sexual histories and proclivities of all these different people because he was trying to study sex and sexuality. And he's the one who came up with what's called the Kinsey scale. Mm -hmm. And the Kinsey scale is if one is completely heterosexual and 10 is completely homosexual, most people actually chill at like four and seven. Hmm. Most people are not 100% completely heterosexual yeah. or 100% completely homosexual. Most people are kind of somewhere on the spectrum is yeah. what is what he came to understand Which after doing, all, taking thousands of sexual histories and compiling the evidence. We have all the, I mean, chromosomes. Yeah. I mean, we all have each chromosome. Like, we, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we all have all of it. We have it all, you know? And like I, I said, can, there's I, a sperm and an egg that made each and every one of that's us. That's right, yeah. Did you know that it's possible to, I think this works both ways, it's possible to have a double X chromosome and be physically male presenting? Yeah. Yeah. And the opposite, you can have an XY and be uh, female presenting. It's it's reasonably rare, of course, yeah. because it's one of those sort of things. But when yeah. I do my trainings on pronouns, um, I include that. And one of my one of my my taglines is like, you use whatever pronoun because you don't know what's in their pants. Mm-hmm. It's none of your business. And some people literally have a genetic makeup where they are genetically, you yeah. know, a, an X an XY, but because of something like say androgen insensitivity syndrome, their gonads never descended and their 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 they never turned into a penis because at some point in the zygote phase, we are all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Your body, either because of its response to estrogen or because of its response to testosterone in the in the embryo in the embryonic stage, sort of starts the process of becoming one or the other. But at some point, all like ovaries and gonads are the same thing. Same thing. It's just that one stays inside and one comes outside. And the penis and the clitoris, to be frank, are the same thing. It's just that one grew and turned into a penis, and one stayed as a clitoris. Just ask hyenas. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's all the same equipment. It's just how it differentiated. I didn't either. uh, Female hyenas have a clitoris that is the size of a penis. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, and it's just all of them. And so, so. (laughs) That was so so, obscure. I was not expecting that. Yeah, no, hyenas are a particularly weird thing, to to be fair. But yeah, no, they all have, uh, all female hyenas have like giant clitorises. Interesting. Wow. Basically a penis. So, so a I sentence think, I thought I'd never hear in my life. I, I, don't think, <laughs> I love it. I think it is part of God's design to have equality and peace between men and women. For men to recognize the divinity in women and for women to recognize and honor the divinity in men. And I do think that that has the opportunity to play itself out in um, – in, in heterosexual relationships in a way that's unique and in a way that's highlighted in the Bible. But I don't believe it's the only way for that to be manifest, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, it's like it's like saying the only way to really know and understand God is to have a child, you know, and that like the design of the man-woman relationship is to have children. There are plenty of heterosexual couples that don't have kids. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that those couples are any less valuable or are like are failing the God design somehow because they choose not to have kids. Right. And I think the ultimate goal that we have to remember is he said there is now neither Jew nor Greek, yeah. male nor female. That's right. Bond or free. So yeah. the ultimate goal of the Christian is there is now no and all of these dividing lines. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, when we talk about gender, people get really 
wild, you know, when they talk about homosexuality, there there's so many things culturally that's already been ingrained in them. It's hard to talk about. Then yeah. you have those people who have, have endured abuse uh-huh. on both sides, yeah. and it's difficult to talk about. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that when God gave his son to the world, that he saved the world. He didn't pick particulars. He saved the world. Yeah, it's the great equalizer. It's the equalizer, and Christ was that great equalizer. Yeah. So whenever you're talking to other people, remember, Christ died for the world. That When I'm talking about from our biblical studies, like I, I want to rem- remind people that, yeah. you know, that when you are to love others, like I don't, if I ever have this discussion, because for me, like I've always... I've always had a a certain viewpoint, you know, yeah. towards homosexuality, which was it is wrong. That's how I've always believed my whole life. It is wrong. I've been told it. I've thought it. I've you know, and this study's been incredible because I had never. I, first of all, I didn't know all of this background. This has been incredible, but you know, I always try to remind everybody that I just say. Have you ever told a lie? Like, I love to say that. Because, yeah. like, why? Why would I say that? Because that is the great equalizer. We're all the same. Like, we, sure. the Bible makes it pretty clear that there is none righteous, no, not even one. Yeah. Regardless of what you might think of any particular topic that we go through, yeah. the great equalizer is that we're all the same. Yeah, we're all the same. We are all the same. I, and, and we all go through a process of rebirth. And I, I think that on the other side of that rebirthing process— I think it is possible to have your mind and your spirit expunged from some of these practices that were abhorrent to God, mm-hmm. but also still remain with a homosexual orientation. Mm-hmm. It's just incumbent upon you with that orientation to choose relationships that are mutually consensual, mm-hmm. mutually gratifying, committed and loving, mm-hmm. and only have power dynamics that are yeah, not um, abusive. That are not abusive. And to not live in a reality wherein you segregate yourself from the opposite sex entirely. Like, I think that's the problem. When a lot of this started to shift is when, like, things started to shift for women and women started being allowed into things. Mm-hmm. And women started, some of the some of the diehard control started to slacken and women started to have a little bit more social and political power and, like, access to education. Once women entered the sphere, then men were no longer the only source of sexual gratification. Some of this kind of went away. Mm. It's the segregation of the sexes that's unnatural. Yeah, it's sure. Living, it's it's just, the segregation yeah. of the sexes that's unnatural. Mm-hmm. We are designed to live in relationship with one another. We oh. all got here because we live in relationship with one another. If our moms and dads didn't get busy, none of us would be here, yeah. regardless. Any sort of segregation allows you to other the people that exactly. you're not exposed to. Exactly. Yeah. That is what is unnatural, is the segregation of the sexes. So I do not believe that that verse is a catch-all condemnation of any and all homosexual relationships. I don't. I, and I think I've made that clear. Mm-hmm. I do believe that it is a commentary on the segregation of the sexes that results results in homosexual relationships that are counter to a person's inborn heterosexual identity because they've been given no option and they've been uh, they've been enculturated through abuse. That's what I think that's about. Mm-hmm. Well, you made your case like very it. strong. Yeah. We only got two more verses to get through, but we uh this has been already been a tough one and a long one. So, um we're going to go ahead and call it and uh guys, this has been really tough. So, be kind to yourselves today. Drink a lot of water and get some rest. If this was triggering for you, it was triggering for me too. I'm with and you. me too. I'm right there with I'm you. I'm with you. This has been really hard. And um, I just want you to 
you know, I'm just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to just be with your heart today as you process everything that we just discussed, because I know this is really challenging. And again, feel free to reach out to us. We're all, we're here for you. If this was triggering in a way and you need to talk, please reach out. And um, we will see you next time on the Burrows of Berea. Peace out. Have a good day. Hey guys, this is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. Her daughter is the cutest. Well, just let's this, like angelic let's, little if it's being. with you, let's just do one more. Okay. And then go on about our day. Well, the thing is, is that. <coughs> yeah. So what we'll do is we'll do we'll do Romans because that's that's we'll do Romans and then we'll just come back to Corinthians and Timothy later. Although really it, it's a good they all kind of go together. Okay. So we'll see. Kind of try to unclobber it. Kind of try to unclobber it. It's a yeah. good book. Are you talking about the book yeah, I have right here? Yeah. Yeah, Unclobber. Oh my gosh, I got to bring your book back. Don't worry about it. This one is really good. And this one, this 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 book actually, this book was really fucking good. I got to be honest with you. It's just yeah. the way my mind works. Uh-huh. Say the title. The New Testament and Homosexuality. By Robin Scroggs. I know. Scroggs. <laughs> Scroggs. Scroggin. Robin Scrotum. Is that kind of what your mind thinks of? I was just I, like Robin Scroggs, like I'm robbing Scroggs, like sex. You heard it, Scroggin? No. Scroggs is a sexual thing. Oh, brother, I did not know yeah. that. No, that's just kissing. Not, no, that's snogging. That's snogging. Scrogging. Scrogging is screw kissing, and that is a that scrogging. Oh my God. So when this says Robin, a- like I'm stealing sex, stealing sex. Robin the New Scruggs. Testament homosexuality oh, by that's Robin Scroggs. hilarious. Scruggs. Poor Robin Scroggs. She obviously has no idea. I had, no, I've never heard that one either. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll tell you what, tiny penis necklace. That is tiny the, what, that's the tiny word of the day. Tiny penis necklace. I, so, uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's just jump right in because I think we're ready. Are we rolling? Yeah. I think oh, yeah, Heather's going to, I've got my phone. I don't know if Heather is back out here or not with, the, but she's going to, she's on GB duty. And uh, yeah, she'll let me know if if she needs my help here. But uh, 